Let's turn to Galatians chapter 3. Galatians chapter 3. We're going to read verse 15 to verse 18. Galatians 3.15 Brethren, I speak in terms of human relations. Even though it is only a man's covenant, yet when it has been ratified, no one sets it aside or adds conditions to it. Now the promises were spoken to Abraham and to his seed. He does not say, and to seeds, as referring to many, but rather to one, and to your seed, that is Christ. What I am saying is this, the law, which came 430 years later, does not invalidate a covenant previously ratified by God so as to nullify the promise. For if the inheritance is based on law, it is no longer based on a promise, but God has granted it to Abraham by means of a promise. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for this time to be together. As always, Lord, it's such a wonderful thing to gather with the saints on Sundays and remember your victory, to remember your goodness, to remember your faithfulness, to be encouraged and edified through your truth. Thank you that Christ is our hope. And Lord, I pray as we turn to this passage of Scripture and we consider it together, I pray, Lord, that you would give us all um, understanding, thoughtfulness, patience, and, Lord, that you would make the truth so clear to us that we would not be able to help ourselves in rejoicing in who you are, Lord. Thank you that this is all about the revelation of your own character and what you are. And thank you for what that means for us. Lord, please minister to us through your word this morning. Please remove distractions and help us to hear your truth. That we would respond in worship to you, Lord, in the way that is fitting. Please glorify your name. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. The book of Galatians is a defense of justification by grace through faith. And it's a defense against an early first century attack against that gospel and against that truth. Right at the very beginning of Christianity, right at the very beginning of the preaching of justification by grace through faith, it comes under attack. And it comes under attack from the inside, from inside the church, apparently. Those who claim to be Christians, those who profess faith in Jesus. So just because we're in the church, we profess faith in Jesus, doesn't mean that we're immune from attack from the inside. There are those who have a faith in Jesus, but it's not the faith in Jesus. It's not the true, common faith of those who are really born again. These men in the book of Galatians were saying that in order to be saved, 
We must keep the law and not just believe. So they're saying, Paul has a lot of things right, but he also has some serious things wrong. And if he's given you the impression that all you have to do is confess you're a sinner and just simply believe in God's grace and believe in Jesus Christ and that saves you, no, that's not true. God gave us the law and we have to keep the law in order to be saved. Believing is not enough. This is a recurring attack that comes against the gospel. It's come against the gospel throughout the ages and it's still coming against the gospel today. I'm sure you've all heard this attack before. It's not going to go out of style until Jesus returns, right? <laughs> Paul's arguments in the book of Galatians, both defensive and offensive, are still relevant today. That is, we can turn to the book of Galatians again and again to furnish ourselves with weapons to contend for this, the faith of the gospel. So I want us all to realize that the book of Galatians is really a classic defense of justification by grace through faith. And you and I can go here again and again when the gospel comes under attack today. We can see his arguments. There are several we've already looked at. Let's see if we can remember them. First, if righteousness comes through the law, then Christ died for nothing, right? This is one thing that Paul says. If you could be good in the eyes of God, through what you do, then what's the point of the death of Christ? In history, Jesus died for our sins. That shows that righteousness does not come through the law. That's an argument Paul furnishes us with, and it's relevant today. You can use that when you are talking with someone who says, no, righteousness isn't through faith alone. You can use that. Here's another one. Paul points to Abraham, and he says, how was Abraham justified? What does the scriptures say? Abraham was justified through faith. That's what the scripture says in Genesis 15. Abraham believed God and it was counted unto him for righteousness. So we can, we can go to Abraham today and that is an argument we can use. Here's another one. The law requires perfection. Perfect love is the standard of the law. If one is to be obedient to God, if, if you say that we have to keep the commandments and be obedient to God to be righteous... Let's be clear on what obedience entails. And Paul points out in the book of Galatians that the law requires us to do all that is written. That's something we can say today, isn't it? When someone says, Terry, you need to keep the law to be saved, not just believe. You can say, hey, the law requires total perfection. Are you perfect? I'm not perfect. None of us are perfect. We all fall short of the standard of the law. Therefore, we can't be justified through the law. Powerful argument. Here's another one Paul uses. He points to Habakkuk chapter 2, verse 4, and he says, look, the prophet here says that the righteous are righteous through faith. And there's an intrinsic difference between believing and doing. And so if the prophet says that we are righteous through faith, then that, sh that must mean that we're not righteous by doing, because the law is not of faith, Paul explained in, earlier in chapter 3. But the prophet says we're righteous through faith. Another powerful argument we can use today. We could point to the flesh versus the spirit theme all throughout the Bible. And we can say, hey, you know, Mr. Legalist who says that we have to keep the commandments in order to be justified. I think you're missing a critical theme throughout the entire Bible. That this is all about believing in what God can do. And in, in what he can do in the face of impossible odds. 
He can do what is humanly impossible. It's not about what we can do. That would be the flesh. This is about trusting in what he can do. That would be the spirit. And he gets all the glory, not us. So you're missing a major unifying theme throughout the Bible. And one more argument Paul gives in Galatians is he points to personal experience. He says, when did you receive the spirit of sonship? When did you receive hope and peace? Was it when you kept the law or was it when you believed the truth of the gospel? So all of us Christians have a powerful argument from personal experience. And you can say, hey, when I took into consideration the truth, I found peace through Jesus Christ. I know that other non-Christians claim to have peace in their personal experience, but we're saying when we took into consideration the whole truth, that is the truth of the law, the truth of what it requires, the truth of the gospel, we found peace in Jesus Christ. We found, we found peace not ignoring truth, but in believing truth, right? We can say that. These are classic arguments Paul gives us. They're as powerful today as ever. And I hope that each and every one of us will feel more and more, more furnished to, to contend for the faith with these arguments at our disposal. Now, in the passage that we read this morning, Paul puts forth another argument against justification through law and for justification by grace through faith. He's not finished yet. He's not going to be finished till the end of the book, really. He puts forth another argument that we can use. And briefly stated, which is what we read, uh, briefly stated, the argument goes as follows. The blessings of God given to Abraham were given by promise. And there's an intrinsic difference between promise and law. That's his, that's his next argument. When God gave his promises to Abraham, when God promised to bless Abraham, and consequently the whole world through Abraham. It was not given by the law, but it was given by promise, and there's an intrinsic difference between those two things. Look at verse 18. For if the inheritance, that is an interesting word, isn't it? Inheritance implies something that's given to you, something that's just promised to you. If the inheritance is based on law, it is no longer based on promise, but God granted it to Abraham by means of a promise. See? So there's an intrinsic difference. If it's by law, it can't be by promise. These two things are mutually exclusive. It's, this is a similar argument to his Habakkuk 2.4 argument in verse 11 and 12, where he says there's an intrinsic difference between believing and doing. Now he's saying there's a difference between promise and law. The one is from the perspective of the, of the receiver. When I receive this thing, do I believe or do I do? There's an intrinsic difference between that. This is from the perspective of the giver. When I give this thing, do I give it by promise or do I give it by law? So it's a similar arg argument, but from a different perspective. If you're saved by believing, then you're not saved by doing. If you're saved by promise, then you're not saved by law. The word promise is a key word throughout the rest of this chapter. You can trace it all the way to verse 29 and it'll pop up again in chapter 4. What we have here in the rest of this chapter from 15 to 29 is really one section and we're just breaking it up 
only because we don't have enough time to preach through the whole thing. But let's bear in mind as we go through the rest of chapter 3 that this is really one section. Paul is focusing on this concept of promise and the promise's relationship to the law. He's going to be talking about that. The commentator G.G. Findlay says this about this next section in Galatians from verse 15 to 29, and I think it should make us all rather curious about it. He says, quote, Paul has written nothing more masterly. In this section from 15 to 29, Paul has written nothing more masterly. The breadth and subtlety of his reasoning, his grasp of the spiritual realities underlying the facts of history are conspicuously manifest in these paragraphs. So brace yourself because as Finley says, what we have here is one of the most masterly excerpts from Paul, where he shows his grasp of spiritual realities and of the underlying facts of divine history and the history of redemption. So this is a powerful, powerful section. And I hope that we're all encouraged by it. If you've never really grasped this section, I hope that this section is something that you're amazed by. I know this was amazing for me when I first understood this. It kind of hit me like a ton of bricks. Whoa! That's what the relationship between the promise and the law is all about. This is powerful, powerful stuff. And I think many religious people don't understand this. You know, Many people who claim to be Christians even, who claim faith in Jesus, really don't have a grasp of history and of promise and of what God was doing when he gave the law. And this is what this is all about. So it's critical. This morning we're going to examine Paul's argument here. We're going to look at three things. First, we're going to look at Paul's use of an a fortiori logic. Paul's use of a fortiori logic. And I'm going to explain what that is. That's a Latin term. But he uses a fortiori logic here. Secondly, we're going to look at the identity of the promise. What was promised and who was the promise uh, given? did God give the promises to? That's verse 16. And thirdly, we're going to look at, and lastly, and thirdly, we're going to conclude by looking at how this promise relates to Jesus Christ. So first, Paul's use of a fortiori logic. A fortiori logic. What is a fortiori logic in reasoning? The Latin means with stronger reason. And basically, this is actually a way of arguing that we should all be familiar with. Basically, it goes like this. If X is true, how much more will Y be true? If we can, if we can all see that this is true, then implicitly, this would prove that Y is true. And we use this kind of reasoning all the time. This is an, uh, a way that humans have reasoned for millennia. As far back as the first century, the Hebrews even had a term for this kind of argument. Kalvachomer, light and weighty is what they called it. This is a light and weighty argument. If the light thing is true, how much more is the weighty thing, thing true? Let me give you an example. Exodus 6.12, Moses says, God, um, they don't, they're not even going to listen to me. What makes you think that they're going to listen to, or, uh, sorry, he says this, the Israelites aren't even listening to me. What makes you think that Pharaoh is going to listen to me? If the Israelites don't listen to me, much more will Pharaoh not listen to me. See? 
That's an a fortiori argument. Arguing from the light to the weighty. Look, the ones who should be listening to me aren't. <laughs> so what makes you think that Pharaoh is going to listen to me? It's not going to happen. Or in Deuteronomy 31, 27, Moses says to the people of Israel, you didn't listen to me when I was alive. Much more are you not going to listen to me after I'm dead. <laughs> right? And this argument is all over the New Testament. Jesus in Matthew 6.30 uses this light and weighty argument. He says, if God takes care of the sparrows, who are basically not worth much, how much more will he take care of you, O you of little faith? Right? So Jesus even thought like this. Look, if it's true here, it's much more true here. He takes care of the animals. Don't you think he's going to take care of you? How many of you need to hear that sometimes, right? We need to hear that. We lose sight of this a fortiori logic. Paul says in Romans chapter 5, verse 17, if through one man's sin, all this death and destruction and condemnation came into the world and passed to all men, how much more do you think through Jesus' act of obedience to God and his sacrifice will blessing and righteousness and goodness flow to all mankind, right? If it's true with Adam, don't you think it's going to be much more true with Christ's righteousness and obedience to God? These are wonderful arguments from Scripture. Now, Paul uses an a fortiori argument right here in our passage. He draws a parallel between human relations and divine relations, the way humans are and the way God is. And he can make those similarities because we're made in God's image. We reflect him. In verse 15, he says, I'm going to put this in a way everyone can understand. In verse 15. Brethren, I speak in terms of human relations. Even though it is only a man's covenant, yet when it has been ratified, no one sets it aside or adds conditions to it. What he's saying is, look, even in human affairs... When a covenant is ratified, it is not annulled or changed. Now, this is something we Americans should appreciate, right? Because we are all into the rule of law. This is what America is all about, the rule of law. And so we've got our, our covenants and our constitutions and our, and our laws, and once they've been ratified, once Congress has decided that's what it's going to be, then no one changes it and no one annuls it. That's what the law is now, and we follow that. Well, that's, that's what it's supposed to be, right? <laughs> so we, we should be able to understand this argument that Paul's giving. Look, that's how it works with people. Covenant ratified, done deal. Doesn't get changed. Someone might say, well, Eli, I think the Constitution does get changed. I mean, don't they make amendments to it, right? Well, what's interesting is Paul, by the word that he uses for covenant, the Greek is diatheke, it is probable that he's actually alluding to something a little bit more specific than just a covenant in general. But the word to his, to his Greek readers is the word that is used of a last will and a testament. A last will and a testament. So it's not just a covenant in general, but when someone gives their last will, their testament, that doesn't get changed. And what is ratification in that sense? I mean, the guy can change it before he dies, right? I want to change that will. I want to make a, an, an amendment on that before I go. But in this case, if the law and the testament 
If the covenant is a last will and a testament, then ratification is essentially death. And when the person dies, then whatever he had bequeathed is set in stone. And no one annuls it, and no one changes it. Luther comments on a last will and a testament that, quote, it is one of the holiest and most laudable customs that are among men. Think about it for a moment. We honor the dead by honoring their last wish, right? And we don't just say, well, he's dead. He's not going to know, <laughs> right? <laughs> we do that because we honor and value people, right? I often wonder why atheists do it. I guess they would just argue for the sake of keeping order in society. But it's something deeper than just keeping order. It's something about honor, honoring their word, honoring their wish as a human being. And, what, and uh, that reminds me, actually, there was a man... And uh, he is on his deathbed. He's an old man. He's a rich man. And he calls his wife in. He says, wife, I'm now dying. And I, uh, I, ha I haven't really taken the time to do my will. And I'm sorry, but I want you to write down my last will, my last wish and testament. And she's in tears. And she's, okay, honey, I'm, I'm ready to do it here. I'm sad that this has come to this. But... And so he says, I want you to give, um, you know, the business... I want you to give it to our son, Harry. And she says, oh, honey, don't do that. That's not a good idea. I think it would be better if we gave it to this son. You know, this son, Harry, he, he's not good with money. You know, he's a gambler. He kind of wastes it. I think it would be more profitable to give it to our son, uh, John. And he says, okay, we'll give it to John. And I want us to give the, the, the stocks, all of our stocks, to our daughter, uh, you know, Nicole. And she says, you know, I think that Nicole's probably already... She's financially stable. Her husband uh, has a good job. Why don't we give it to our other daughter here, uh, you know, Jessica? I'm just making these names up. <laughs> and he says, all right, I'll give it to her. You know, that's fine. That's good. And then he says one more thing, and, and this keeps going on. He keeps saying, I want to, let's, let's give this to this, I want this to go to this person. And his wife says, no, honey, I really think that it would be better. And then finally he says, wife, I really love you, but who's doing the dying around here? <laughs> we honor the word of men, and it doesn't get changed when it's solemnly ratified. And so the argument is implied here, if this is so with men, how much more is it with God's word? If we honor the word of men, how much more will God honor his own solemn word of promise? When a man ratifies his word in his covenant, it doesn't get changed or annulled. When God ratifies his word, it does not get changed or annulled. We're not saying God dies. That's not what Paul is saying. Not that God makes a last will and a testament and then dies. I don't believe he's referring to the death of Christ. But like a will, just like a will is unconditional, unilateral, and bequeathing, so God unconditionally, unilaterally bequeaths gifts to men on the basis of his promise. And so actually the last testament is will is a wonderful uh, uh, analogy to God's promises. Unilateral, unconditional bequeathing of gifts. And just as men honor those wills and don't change it, the living God honors his own word and will not change it. As sure as a will is, more sure is God's word. Amen? 
In fact, I think sometimes the word promise is a little fuzzy in our mind because in English we use the word promise for so many different things, like I promise you it's going to be great or something like that. But the word promise, the etymology is promission, meaning you send beforehand. You send beforehand. You make a statement, and before you've actually given it, you've basically already given it based upon your word. You send beforehand. I think that perhaps a better word in English to capture the meaning of the promise here in Galatians would be the word pledge. God pledged this to Abraham. On his honor, he pledged these things to Abraham. And when you pledge something to someone, you're making yourself vulnerable. Because if you don't do it, you're risking the loss of your own reputation. That's what the pledge is all about. There's an old English saying that we don't use anymore. When someone makes a pledge or a promise to give something, they plight their trough. Have you ever heard of that? They plight their trough. That's truth. The truthfulness, they, they put in danger their own truthfulness when they make a pledge. And this is what God does, what he has done. He plighted his troth. He made himself vulnerable. He gave his pledge to Abraham. He unilaterally, unconditionally bequeathed this to Abraham. And his honor is at stake. So what Paul is saying here, if this is true with men, how much more is it with God? When he gives his word, it is a done deal and it cannot be changed. Let's move on. Secondly, the identity of the promise, what was given and to whom. Now let's look at verse 16 together. Verse 16 is actually parenthetical. Verse 15 naturally flows into verse 17. Verse 15 and 17 really belong together. Verse 16, Paul uh, is reminding his readers about the covenant that God gave to Abraham for the sake of his a fortiori argument and for the sake of his examination of history here in this big section at the end of chapter 3. But it's interesting, it's almost like Paul got ahead of himself. I, I, you may disagree with me, but I kind of detect that Paul, the human being, as he was writing the book of Galatians, kind of got ahead of himself, and it would have been more natural to put verse 16 first. That the, that the, the argument would have run a little bit smoother if he had said, now, to, now the promises were spoken to Abraham and to his seed. Brethren, I speak in terms of human relations. Though a man's covenant is given, it's, and it's ratified, no one sets it aside. And then in verse 17, what I'm saying is the law which came 430 years later. So Paul kind of jumps into his argument in verse 15. When a man gives a covenant and ratifies it, no one changes it. Oh, wait, by the way, I'm talking about Abraham's covenant. Okay, guys, what I'm saying is this, verse 17. So it's almost like Paul got ahead of himself. His point here in verse 16 is to simply draw our attention to the fact that God made a pledge to Abraham and his descendants in order to make the, lighty, the light to the weightier argument. Look, God made this pledge, and if man's pledges remain, so much more will God's. What are the promises? What, are, what did he pledge? In verse 16, notice that the word promises is in plural. In the context of Galatians, it is clear that the promises that, God has in, that Paul has in view here is the blessings promised to Abraham. Look at verse 8 and 9. 
The scripture foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles by faith, preached the gospel beforehand to Abraham, saying, all the nations will be blessed in you. So then those who are of faith are blessed with Abraham, the believer. Look at verse 14. In order that in Christ Jesus, the blessing of Abraham might come to the Gentiles so that we would receive the promise of the Spirit through faith. So Paul's already been mentioning the blessings of Abraham or the blessings that God promised to Abraham. And so that's already in his mind and now he's just simply making a statement that these were given to Abraham by promise. Now he doesn't go into all the specifics here, but what, were, what was promised to Abraham? If we go back to Genesis, it's clear. Abraham, when in Genesis 12, 3, God said, leave your home and go to the land that I will show you. He promised him several things. And he reiterated those promises again and again and again throughout the book of, of Genesis. Abraham was promised land. He was promised to become a great nation. He was promised prosperity. I will bless you. And he was promised to be a blessing to all the earth. And like I said, these are reiterated over and over and over. The book of Hebrews 11, uh, the book of Hebrews in chapter 11 tells us that Abraham never obtained these promises. He embraced them by faith. It's interesting that Abraham didn't inherit the land in his, in his lifetime. He didn't become a great nation in his lifetime. He didn't have prosperity either, really. I mean, sure, God blessed him with riches and stuff, but... Um, he had to go through a lot of hardship. And he didn't become the blessing to all the earth in his lifetime either. He embraced those promises by faith. He looked forward to God's fulfilling those in him and in his descendants in the future. In a nutshell, we can say that the blessings promised to Abraham really is simply ultimate salvation. Ultimate salvation. Eternal life prosperity, a home, and a people. And all of that to give us the knowledge of God, and all of that because God said, I will be your God. And brothers and sisters, when God is your God, when you have a God like God, then all of these things will come to you because God is your God. He's going to take care of you. He's going to save you. He's going to bless you. He's going to meet all of your needs and your provisions. Now, I'm not, saying that, I'm not tell, telling you in this life you're going to have all this prosperity. Look at Abraham. But I am saying that ultimately, salvation will be yours with its prosperity, its home, and its people because God is your God and he will take care of his sheep. Amen? How many of you want eternal life? How many of you want prosperity? How many of you want a home and to belong to a people? and to know God and have God be your God. Yeah, me. And this is essentially what was promised to Abraham. Let's just take all those things and for the sake of simplicity, call it all by one term, blessing. That is, God promised to bless Abraham and he'll be blessed in the best possible and most complete way. Now we come to something a little bit more controversial. In verse 16, Paul talks about who the promises were given. The promises, who were they given to? And this is sadly a controversial verse. 
though it was not intended to be controversial by Paul. And in the Christian church, this, has spawned, this verse has spawned a debate that is not central to Paul's argument here in this chapter. It's not central to Paul's argument here in this chapter. I've already mentioned how verse 16 is a parenthesis. Paul's point here in this section is to make an a fortiori argument about if man's promises are are ratified and secure, how much more will God's be? He makes a parenthetical aside just to highlight what promise he's talking about. And it's been, it's, it's, uh, been noticed by commentators that there's even a parenthesis within a parenthesis here. Verse 16 is parenthetical, but so is the second half of verse 16 parenthetical. So this is really kind of an aside and an aside, not central to Paul's argument here in verse 15 through 18, and yet it spawned great debate. Even though what's interesting is in the Christian church, those who disagree on this topic of who the promises were given to all agree on the argument that Paul's making here. And verse 16, or sorry, verse 15, verse 17, verse 18, 19 through 29, all Christians agree on what Paul's saying here. So it's, it's kind of fascinating that there can be such disagreement in verse 16 as to who the promises were made to, and yet all the other verses around, everyone's in total agreement on. So just bear that in mind that this debate and this controversy isn't even central. But because of its great influence in other areas of doctrine, I think it's pertinent to address it. This is a pivotal verse, a pivotal verse and depending on how we interpret who God made the promises to will determine other uh, doctrines. Now, verse 16 is, used, is a verse that is used to say this in the Christian church. That, Abra- that the Abrahamic covenant, the promises that God gave to Abraham, never applied to the Jews. Have you heard that before? So this verse is is used to say that the Abrahamic covenant actually didn't apply to the Jews. And if you look at the verse, it says here that the promises were made to Abraham and to his seed. And then Paul gives another parenthesis. He does not say, and to seeds, as referring to many, but rather to one, and to your seed, that is Christ. So the verse is, is interpreted by many to say that what Paul is saying here is that God's promises to Abraham and the Abrahamic covenant of blessing was actually spoken only and given only to Abraham and to Christ. And if you think that it was given to many people like the Jews, then you're wrong. And Paul's actually correcting that point of view here. And furthermore, those who believe in Christ, as we go on in the chapter, are then incorporated into Christ and become heirs to the promise. So God's promises were given to Abraham and to Christ, and insofar as we believe in Christ, we are brought into Christ, and then we become inheritors of the promises as well, but only because we're in Christ. Not because the promises were made to us, but because we come into the one to whom the promises were made. And we must give this verse 
uh, give this interpretation some, some credit. Uh, it's been said by many that this interpretation is both elegant and simple. It's an elegant idea, isn't it? Let's just simplify the whole thing. God gave promises to Abraham and his seed, referring to Christ. And by simply coming into Christ, you inherit the promises. It's, it's kind of beautiful, and it's kind of simple. And that is an attractive option for many. Also, the text seems to imply it, doesn't it? The text seems to imply that on a reading. That seems to be what it says. Now, I don't speak for All Saints Church when I say this, but I'm simply speaking for myself. That I believe that this interpretation of verse 16 is not required from the text and that it's full of problems. So, first of all, it's not required by the text. The, the text can actually be interpreted in a different way and in a better way that is less problematic because that interpretation that the promises were given to Abraham and to only Christ pr creates problems on so many levels. And I admit that the interpretation that, that I have of this text, it's, it's not as simple, I agree. Um, it, might, it might not even be as elegant. And the, the implications of it uh, throughout the whole Bible may not be as simple. But I would simply say just because something is not simple doesn't necessarily mean it's false. And just because something is simple doesn't mean that it is true, right? A lot of things in the Bible are not simple. And here's the other interpretation. And I'm not certainly alone in this. These are kind of two major camps in Christianity on this. The other interpretation is that in verse 16, Paul is not talking about the Jews versus Christ. He's not saying, guys, the promises were not made to the Jews, to many people, but only to Christ. But what Paul is talking about in verse 16 is that the promises were not made to Ishmael and to Abraham's other sons, but to Isaac. So he's talking about Abraham's sons here and not the mass of the Jews versus one Messiah. But he's talking about Abraham's sons. He's saying, look, the promises wasn't given, given to Abraham's sons, plural. The promises were given to only one, and that is Isaac. Does that make sense? That, I mean, at least see what, what is being said. Now, the promises were spoken to Abraham and to a seed. He doesn't say to seeds, meaning to all of Abraham's sons, as to many, but rather to one, which is, and to your seed. And here is Isaac that is in view. And in this view, the last three words of verse 16 are actually a remez, which is a hint, or a midrash, which is a searching, meaning that in the last three words of verse 16, Paul is simply saying, and that is Christ, meaning he's pointing to Isaac, and he's saying that Isaac is essentially representing Christ, or Isaac is a type of Christ. Gigi Finlay comments on this text and captures sort of what I'm getting at. Quote, The true seed of Abraham was in the first instance, when he means the first instance, he means uh, originally in, in Genesis when Isaac was chosen. 
The, the true seed of Abraham was in the first instance not, uh, not many but one, referring to Isaac. In the primary realization of the promise, and he's still thinking about Isaac, typical of its final accomplishment, it received a singular interpretation. So Finlay is saying, when God gave the promises to Abraham in its initial stage, something happened that was typical of its final stage. And in its initial stage, which is given to Isaac, the final stage received its singular interpretation. The promise concentrated itself on the one spiritual offspring, putting aside the many natural descendants. And this sifting principle, this law of election, which singles out from the varieties of nature, the divine type, comes into play all along the line of descent, as in the case of Jacob and of David, and finds its supreme expression in the person of Christ. So verse 16 is talking about Isaac and not Abraham's other sons, and Isaac is Christ, a type of Christ and a representative of Christ. That is, by choosing Isaac as the heir of the promise, God was pointing to Christ. Listen, listen carefully. By choosing Isaac as the heir of the promise. So I'm here assuming, or I'm here stating that Isaac was chosen as the heir of the promise. By choosing Isaac as the heir of the promise, God was pointing to Christ. He wasn't pointing to Christ by circumventing Isaac. For Isaac to be a type of Christ, Isaac must be something and not nothing. So Paul isn't saying, you know, forget that Isaac and Jacob and the Jews received the promises. It was just made to Christ. Rather, he's saying the fact that it was given to Isaac and not to the other sons is a type of Christ and pointing to Christ. And I'd like to give briefly five reasons why this is a better interpretation than the other. First of all, the former interpretation fails to account for the collective singular of the word seed. Now, the promises were spoken to Abraham and to his seed. How many of you are familiar with that in the book of Genesis when God repeatedly says, I'm going to bless you and your seed. I'm going to give this land to you and your seed. I'm going to make you and your seed a great nation, you know? And I'm going to be your God. I'm going to be your God you, to you and your seed. In Hebrew, in Greek, and in English, the word seed is in the singular, but it's a collective singular. It's one of those interesting words that, even though it's in the singular, it, it actually is a plural. Do you know what I'm saying? That I'm going to bless your seed. It's a singular, not seeds, but in that is a whole bunch of descendants, right? It's like sheep. Um, there's many different words we could point out that shows this collective singular. And in, in the interpretation that I take, you can keep the plain sense. You can, you can take this collective singular. The promises were not spoken to, a the promises were spoken to Abraham and his seed, collective singular. He doesn't say to seeds, many collective singulars, but to your seed, that is one, one collective singular, Isaac. What's interesting is that the other interpretation, which says, no, no, he's not talking about plurality at all. He's just talking about one person. That's received ridicule from 
Bible readers for millennia. And they actually say that if you take that view, then Paul basically didn't understand the Hebrew language. He's saying it's not plural, it's singular. And everyone says, Paul, it's plural. You're just, this is a strained argument, Paul. Clearly when Abraham was, and his seed were given the promises, we should think plural because it's a collective singular. And so this actually receives criticism and people laugh at that view because it is ignoring the grammar. The grammar is a collective singular. N.T. Wright, with whom I disagree on many things, I agree with him here. He says, the singularity of the seed is not the singularity of an individual person contrasted with the plurality of many human beings, but the singularity of one family contrasted with the plurality of families. Okay? So, in the former interpretation, if you say it wasn't given to lots of people, it was just given to one person, we'd have to say, Paul, your argument doesn't really stick because the Hebrew is clearly, yes, it's singular, but it's a plural singular. It's a collective singular. And so you're just straining. But we avoid that entirely with the other uh, interpretation. Secondly, the Old Testament gives the clear impression that the promises belonged to Israel. Not only did God say, Abraham, to you and your seed, I will bless you and make you a blessing, but that same promise is reiterated to Isaac. Isaac, to you and your seed, I will make you a blessing. And to Jacob, Jacob, to you and your seed, I will make a blessing and bless. So either we have to drop the idea that only to Abraham and, his seed, and Christ were the promises made, or we have to include Isaac and Jacob and, of course, Israel as well for the promises are, are, it, the clear impression is that they're given to Israel. And if they're not, I suggest it's kind of a, cool, a, cruel, a cruel trick by God to fool people into thinking that he made promises to people that he didn't make promises to. And so Israel and the world at large expects God to fulfill those promises and God doesn't and says, I actually didn't make them to you at all. I think this is not only a cruel trick but a very serious problem because then God's honor is at stake in the eyes of the world. Because we, we may as Christians say, well, you got it all wrong, world. He never made promises to them. And they might say, that's silly. First of all, the grammar says that he did. And second of all, that just seems like you're making a strained argument to avoid the need for God to fulfill those promises. God's honor is at stake because most people, I think rightly, understand that God made the promises to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and to Israel. Thirdly, Israel's deliverances in the Old Testament are always expressly tied to the Abrahamic covenant, right? So when Israel is in trouble, God remembers his covenant that he made with Abraham, and he comes and rescues them. That's 2 Kings, verse, 2 Kings 13 is a, is a typical example where Israel's in trouble, and God looks upon them in mercy, remembering his covenant that he made to Abraham. If the Abrahamic covenant had nothing to do with the Jews, then this makes no sense. And turn with me to Romans chapter 9. Romans chapter 9. In verse 4. And I think that this should be conclusive for us as Bible readers. 
Romans 9, 4. And here we see Paul explicitly says, when he's speaking about his, his kinsmen, when he's speaking about his kinsmen, according to the flesh, he says they are Israelites to whom belong the adoption as sons and the glory and the covenants and the giving of the law and the temple service and the promises who are the fathers and from whom is the Christ according to the flesh who is over all God blessed forever. And so Paul very explicitly says here that to these unbelieving sinful Jewish people they possess a lot of very interesting things namely the covenants plural and the promises plural. Turn to Romans 11 verse 27 And here in verse 27, speaking of Israel again, this is my covenant with them when I take away their sins. From the standpoint of the gospel, they are enemies for your sake. So the people he's talking to are not believers, and he clearly says they're quite hostile to the gospel. But they, from the standpoint of God's choice, are beloved for the sake of the fathers, for the gifts and the calling of God are irrevocable. So there I think Paul is quite clear that these people, to them belong the promises. And now turn with me back to Galatians 5, my last point before we move on here. On this very important passage, who were the promises made to? My last reason why the former is not a good interpretation is this, that such an argument that the promises were not made to the Jews but to Christ only is far too revolutionary for a parenthesis within a parenthesis. That that, I don't know perhaps if we appreciate how radical and revolutionary such a statement would be because brothers and sisters, all the Jews in the first century all the Christians in the first century who basically had strong connections with Judaism, the agitators in Galatia, at Galatia, and even the people in Galatia who were being influenced by the agitators, everybody believed that the promises were made to the Jews. And so if Paul was to hear say they weren't, that would be so revolutionary that I do not believe Paul would simply make a passing comment in a parenthesis that basically says, oh yeah, you know this view that everybody believes? Yeah, it wasn't really made to them. Oh, and moving on. And especially when you consider that in this passage, it's not Paul's intention to debunk the entire belief system of everyone who's reading. This is a passing comment. Paul's point here in this passage is simply to connect the dots of things people already know. He's saying, you Galatians know that the, to Abraham and his seed, the promises were made. You know that it wasn't to many, but to one. And you know that it was, it's Christ who is the, is the uh, quintessential Isaac. And I don't, I don't get the impression Paul is revolutionarily debunking their belief system. He's just connecting the dots to make an a fortiori argument. In fact, one theologian rightly says this, and I quote, 
Perhaps what confuses us here is the assumption that the apostle is saying something controversial. We should consider the possibility that Paul's readers and even his Judaizing opponents would have readily acknowledged this identification between Abraham's seed and Christ. And I agree. I don't think Paul's making a controversial claim here. What Paul is at pains to argue here in Galatians is not that the Jews were not given promises by God, but how the promises are received. That's the whole thing in the book of Galatians. How are we going to inherit the blessing? Is it by grace through faith, or is it by keeping the law? Is it by the flesh, or is it by the spirit? Is it by what God, can, God does, or is it by what we do? That's Paul's intention here, not to debunk a deeply held belief, and a belief that's held for good reason. And if you go to the Old Testament, I don't think there is a doubt that God made promises to the Jews, but there is also no doubt that there is a character to those promises. There's a character to those promises. That is, they will be fulfilled supernaturally, not naturally, as typified by Isaac. He is the supernatural son, isn't he? Isaac is the son of the spirit and not the son of of the flesh, as we'll see in chapter 4. And of course, the characters that have the prompt, that have this, the promises, excuse me, that have the characteristics of the Spirit are fulfilled in Jesus Christ, the Messiah, and for all those who believe in Jesus. All the promises of God are concentrated in Christ, the quintessential Isaac, whom God had in view all along when he made the promises to Abraham. And we can truly say, brothers and sisters, that in Christ your seed shall be called. We can truly say that Abraham's seed is called in Christ without denying that promises were made to Abraham's, to Isaac, Jacob, and Israel. In Christ thy seed shall be called, so it was, so it is, and so it shall be. Now in conclusion this morning, I'd like to again point out that regardless of our interpretation of verse 16, all Christians are agreed, interestingly, on the rest of this passage. On verse 15, 17, 18, 19 through 29, you won't find disagreement among Christians on this passage. That shows you the parenthetical nature of verse 16. All Christians are in agreement that what Paul is saying here is that, yes, God gave the law, verse 17, but it was years after he gave the promises, and the law cannot nullify the promises. The promises are God's pledge, his unconditional, unilateral bequeathment of blessing to Abraham and his descendants. Verse 18 the inheritance of the promises cannot be by law, not only because the law cannot be fulfilled by us, but because there's an intrinsic difference between promise and law. How did God give it? Did he give it upon the condition of obedience or did he give it unconditionally as a pledge? And Paul says it was unconditional as a pledge. That's how God gave it and we are to therefore Receive it by faith and not by doing. Just as there's a difference between believing and doing, there's a difference between promise and law. And if it depended on law, God's word would fail. It would, his pledge would never come to pass. Imagine if God said to you, 
in order for you to be blessed, you have to keep the law. And I'm not, there's, there's just no way out of that. How many of us would actually be blessed? The good news, brothers and sisters, is that yes, though God did give the law, originally and before that, he gave us his pledge that we would be blessed, that Abraham and his descendants, and we are his descendants if we believe, we would be blessed. He gave us that pledge. If it doesn't happen, then God's honor is compromised. His word fails. His power is shown to be nothing. And so even though we fail at obeying the law, and even though none of us actually are law keepers, and even though none of us deserve the blessing, because of that promise, we can know that God is still going to bless, and we can trust in his promise and in his power to do it. And how does he do it? He does it through Jesus Christ. He does it through the quintessential Isaac. He does it through the one of the Spirit who comes with God's power, who comes and dies for our sins, who comes and takes away the obstacle to blessing, and who comes and provides us with the righteousness that we need in order to be blessed. Through the death of Christ, the blessing of Abraham comes to those who believe. It never depended on God's law. God's word cannot fail. And so all that is for us to do is to believe. God has plighted his troth. God has promised blessing. Do you believe in his promise, in his pledge, and in his power? And that what he says will come to pass. Let's remember this morning as we take the Lord's Supper that one of the things that Jesus was doing when he died on the cross, one of the things to consider in that whole sacrificial event was that Jesus was dying to uphold the honor of God who pledged us blessing, pledged Abraham, his descendants, and the world blessing. And Jesus was dying so that that blessing could come to us by faith so that God's word would be upheld. Let's remember that together as we remember the body and the blood of Jesus. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for your pledge. You did not need to give that. We truly deserve death. We didn't deserve the blessing. Thank you that you love this world so much that you would stake your own honor in giving us salvation. Lord, I pray that, Lord, you would help us to understand these, these difficult uh, passages, that we would be able to see your faithfulness and your goodness more clearly and understand your word and be set free by your truth. Lord, please help us to see this morning as we take communion that you unconditionally blessed us and bequeathed upon us eternal life. Help us to see what a cost it was and what a gift of mercy that was. Help us not to take these things lightly, Lord, but truly to be amazed at you and to give you back the honor that you deserve. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.